What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Frontliners. This week, I'm sitting down with the one and only Jan the Man Lapierre. A little bit of background story on Jan. He's the co-founder of A for Adventure, one of my all-time favorite socially-minded small businesses. He's also a new dad, a contributor to the CBC, best-selling children's book author, speaker, ocean worshiper, and adventurer extraordinaire. Jan Lapierre, welcome to the show. It is good to see you and hear you. Likewise, buddy. I've been uh, meaning to uh, tee up for an interview for a long time, so it's good, uh, good to get together. Well, you're one of the few people when I see that there's a request come through for somebody and I see your name attached to it that I'm always bound to say yes. Yes, sir. I, I appreciate that. And likewise, especially with, uh, with the footprint and, and all the good work you guys are doing. And you know what? I won't spoil that for the listeners just yet because I know they, they want to hear it from you. But to dig right into this podcast, I want to start on a principle that you carry with you or, or a mantra. In, when we were talking beforehand, you mentioned something that your grandfather used to say to you. And, and what, what's that mantra that you repeat to yourself on almost like a daily cadence? Yeah, you know, and I've been saying it to myself a lot more recently with the addition to the family than probably ever before. And that's right. my grandfather. This is my, my dad's dad. And uh, he always would say to us, you know, you must have the courage of your convictions. I like it. Yeah, me too, man. And, and it's one of the, I mean, you hear, we hear quotes, you know, fire up Instagram anytime, any day, and you can get, you know, ad nauseum amount of cliches. Right. And sometimes, look, a cliche does a good job. Yeah, sometimes it's powerful. Yeah. Fully, man. And look, time and place too, right? Like sometimes the, the right words at the right time mm-hmm. are what we need to hear. Mm-hmm. And I think he was always skillful at dropping that quote at those right times when right. I needed to hear it. Right. A really amazing man, really just somebody who probably more than any other that I admire and try to model myself after. And just somebody who, yeah, I treasured my, my experience with him. And uh, he lived to the ranch of old age of 92. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, a good long life. And I'm actually sitting uh, and just next to me here is a picture of him that I, of him hey, and nice. I in a boat together. Yeah. So he's somebody who I admire to the ends of this earth. No kidding. No kidding. And when you mentioned that to me, it, it sort of like a light bulb went off because I consider you to be somebody who really lives your convictions, right? Like you don't just talk the walk, you know, you, you walk the walk, man. And what you're doing, I think, is obvious to some people, right? And, and we're, we're going to take a little turn here into the A for Adventure backstory. But, but the work that you guys do is, is obvious to some people, but not to everybody. And, and we used to say in experiential education, well, more specifically, Ian Smith used to say, some people just get it and some people are, are on the path. And for you guys to put yourself out there with your own workshops all the time, I mean, man, you can just see the conviction in you and the leadership in, in you and, and Chris and what you guys do and the people that just congregate to you. So is that something that you, you really feel has been a big part of your, your work and of founding a company? Well, first of all, thank you. Of course. There's a lot of nice words to say on what has something that's been really, you know, a journey to get here. Mm-hmm. You mentioned our, our, our mutual uh, mentor. That's right. Mr. Ian Smith. Legend. Another, yeah, legend in the truest sense of the word and someone, you know, who I think we both look up to, which, you know, for the listeners might be interesting. I mean, one of our very first hangouts ever was on the side of Mount Carlton, the highest peak in the Maritimes with Mr. Ian Smith. That's right. In the heart of the Appalachians in Canada. That's right. And yeah. another, another interesting tidbit that people might not know. That's is that, right. Yeah, the Appalachians, they, they, their spiny little fingers make it up to Canada too. That's right. So, you know, look, I feel very strongly about making decisions about the kind of life a person wants to live. But let me slap down a number of caveats on all this before we get into the weeds of it. And that is... I most certainly didn't always live like this. And part of what has guided both, you know, my personal principle about the way I try to go about living life, but also the principle that we've kind of structured our company around, A for Adventure, goes back to the idea that like the most critical amount of learning that we do 
is typically through our failures. No, I don't want to like make anybody think that we've cracked some kind of code. We've gone through this with the most bullheaded approach that uh, you know a couple of guys can make, which is like, let's try all things, and this extends to life too, and see what ideas stick against the wall. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, a lot of really what has informed me more than anything else is some catastrophic failures along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, and, and to take this back to the experiential education world, but I, I think the, the Greeks really had it where they understood that, that you learn from failure, right? Your body instinctively pushes you away from failure. So it's not necessarily that, that we learn even in, in the moments of, of clarity. Uh, I think we get much deeper clarity coming out of the valleys. You know where where we we are trying things and we're screwing up. I think that's that's where real learning happens. And then you know I think a huge advantage that that you and and Chris have in in doing the work that you guys do every day is that bullheadedness. You guys just attack the day. You know, <laughs> and and I really mean that because I think there's probably been instances where you guys have felt like giving up as entrepreneurs and just you know going back to previous work that you'd been doing, you know, I know you worked previously at the IWK Children's Hospital. No, that's, that's a great job and, and meaningful work. And there must be times when you guys are looking at each other and thinking like, dude, what are we doing this for? Look, the easier option by a long shot would be just to go get a job, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and a fulfilling job at that of which out there, there are many. I mean, I loved the work that I did within mental health. That's a huge mm-hmm. piece of the work we currently do. Right. And part of the reason that we wanted to transition into doing it on our own right. is because a lot of the messages and a lot of the, the work that was so central to what we did with clients within healthcare, mm-hmm. it's my belief that those same skill sets are valuable to a much broader population of the world. Right. And that's really what informed the beginning, like the genesis of what a prevention would evolve to become, mm. was let's tease out some of those things from recreation therapy that, you know, you share this too. I mean, you've spent probably more than enough time with people in the outdoors. Right. And when you do, there are these moments where these conversations happen. If it's along a hike, you're sitting around a campfire, like whatever the circumstance, even if it's just that five minutes, like where you and a coworker walk outside just to take a breath from the day's events. There's something profound there. And from my experience early on, you know, I can recognize that people could process things a bit more effectively. A conversation could be just a little more rich outside. Yep. Yeah, I agree. No, that's not to say that there aren't more elements to it, but there is like a fundamental piece of a larger formula that needs to be accounted for. And when you bring people outside, like the majority of the situations that I've seen work out to be a positive. Not always, but mostly. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And and you know what? When when I used to really do a lot of that work, I always wondered what it was. And I found, especially at a place like Mount Carlton, you can feel a connection to sort of like like the divine realm. Is you know, I I, I had many instances that were like not necessarily re- realizing it at the time, but realizing it now they were religious experiences. And I don't mean that in the big grandiose way, like trying to get, I think it can be easy to say like, oh, I had a you know, spiritual rebirth. But man, I, I learned how to do so much when I worked with Ian Smith at Parks, New Brunswick. Mostly what I learned was how to just work hard. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's something that I, I sort of felt like I was missing up and do that was that like, man, you could, you just got to do hard ass physical work and it's going to kick your ass. But, but you got the only, the only path is through. You know, that that's such an Ian thing to say. Yeah. And funny thing about a leader like Ian is I could say the same thing and it probably wouldn't have the same level of like, (laughs) moment, you know, but just like the stoic way that he would say it makes it always like so much more impactful. And I'd be like, oh man, I really got to think about that. Yeah, but I think you touch on something, man, and this is this is a hard conversation for people to have. And and you mentioned a, the word religion or religious experience. You mentioned the word spirituality, mm-hmm. and these are major factors in people's lives that, for a whole host of reasons that I am not qualified to speak to, we as a society have done ourselves a bit of a disservice by really demonizing a lot of the word around 
spirituality, you know, yeah. and there are yeah, lots, this, this is a, a bit of a quagmire of a thing to go into, but, and I, I by no means subscribe to any specific religion by any stretch of the imagination, but I share exactly what you're saying. And, you know, I guess to go back to that original quote, part of the conviction that I have around the outdoors is believing that there is a spiritual element to that. It can be the most superficial level or at the very deepest part of people's experience. That being said, it's an element that I think isn't given enough time to think about skillfully as people. And mm -hmm. the outdoors gives us a form to do that. Yeah. Now, how, again, people want to process that on their own, that's up to them. But in my experience, the people who I've met, who I've seen, who I really look to as being leaders, as being people who I want to emulate, they have a deeper sense of connection to purpose. If you want to call that spirituality, if you want to call that faith, if you just want to call that earnest conviction, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be, mm -hmm. they're tapping to a source that's bigger than them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I man, that's, that's bang on. That, that's a really elegant way of putting it. Because it doesn't really matter what the denomination is, I don't think. But I think when you're outside, you're not physically confined by anything except elements. And that, that's what I, like, I felt often when I was at Mount Carlton doing work with people I respected and admired and, you know, you guys included, I felt like there was, like, time was no object. Like, days just flew by. But I just, I just felt like that was, I don't know if it was maybe just the time for me, you know, being in my, my early 20s when I was doing that work. But it was just like compounding brand new experiences, brand new perspectives every single day. I'd have to really digest and reflect on the experience at the, at the, end, of the, at the end of the day or, or however long we'd been there for. But it, it really is a powerful forum. So kudos to you and, and to you and Chris to continuing that tradition and not only that, building a business around doing that and doing work that you love. Yeah, man. I mean, again, thank you. You know, I share, I mean, Mount Carlton. And again, for those people who don't know it, because, and I'll be honest with you, it was, it's been within the last decade that I even knew a place like Mount Carlton existed. For those who don't know, I am an East Coast elitist. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the East Coast. Uh, in all seriousness, I love all of Canada. I love the world. But a place like Mount Carlton, which is so gorgeous, uh, I had no idea it existed until friends of mine made mention of it. And this is in fairly recent history. And I like right. to consider myself, at least on the on the Atlantic coast, somebody who knows about the, the sweet spots. Yeah. And it's a holy place. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a sacred place to our First Nations people here. And if you're someone who's listening, who's near the Great Lakes, if you're by the mountains, if you're by the sea, it doesn't matter. I mean, these places, they exist the world over. Yeah. But when you get there and you are able to just tap in a little bit to that energy, it feeds a conversation and it feeds, if that conversation is happening with people, that's great. But sometimes that conversation is with yourself too, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which are often the most important conversations that we need to have. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So. Jan, just to, to keep keep riffing on this thread for a minute, because uh, I want to tell you the, the story of how I actually came to know anything about A for Adventure and what you guys were doing. And so I was running Get Outside with Ian, and there was a meeting, a marketing meeting going on with uh, the governor of New Brunswick, Parks New Brunswick, and they were watching your guys' videos. And I, I dipped into the room. I wasn't even in the meeting, but I was like, well, what, what's going on here? Like, these are, these are great videos. These guys are doing some cool adventure tourism stuff, getting a lot of people out there. And I had heard your guys' name, like, periodically, like, A for Adventure. So I dip into the meeting, and I'm like, who are these guys? And one of the marketing managers was like, oh, it's A for Adventure. These guys are awesome. They're, uh, they're doing a northern New Brunswick uh, road trip coming up next weekend. And Ian Smith and I had been on the road for like all summer. Like we were gone all the time. Like I, I, we, we were pretty much working like seven days a week. I, like I'd take Mondays off and we were having, it was, it was amazing time. And we thought we had a weekend off and I was like, we got to go too. And they're like, oh, you guys will, will take them and like show them around. And we were like, I was just like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> we're, we're in. So we had to go get the big canoe, the Voyager canoe and everything. 
And on the meantime, Ian's thinking he's got a weekend off and he's like, I go and tell him and I was like, Hey, so, you know, we're going to take the A for adventure guys up through Northern New Brunswick. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I thought, no, I, we didn't have anything scheduled. And I was like, yeah, but you know, they're going up and, and they need somebody to, to be with them. And especially at Mount Carlton, he was like, Oh, okay. And he was like, it's, that's weird, man. Like, like it's weird that they would just schedule us for that and like not ask anyone. And I was sort of thinking, I was like, uh, yeah. I guess it is weird <laughs> that I volunteered us to go and hang out with these guys for the weekend and uh good move on my part. You know, I had a hunch and I uh, just, I was like, we, we have to be there for th- this project. Uh, once in a while, I'll actually go back and watch the videos that first trip being up there with you guys. And there's some awesome content in that and just that stuff alone that I love. You know, uh, a hilarious little, uh, tidbit from that trip is within our company and we've grown to have a a lot of people who work with us now right we we have a a little piece of vernacular and it's a direct quote from you actually because in an early video and this goes back probably five or six years ago oh yeah in the cutting of that video you are talking about a, a variety of lichen in the park and you say tons of it man. <laughs> We say that to each other all tons of the it, time. And, yeah, tons of it, man. Tons of it. I know. I know. I can I actually, I, I know the clip really well. And it's a hilarious clip. When, when I realized that you guys started saying that, tons of it, man. That was the response. Like, Chris is like, is there a lot of that here? And I'm like, tons of it, man. <laughs> and then you guys took that and ran with it. <laughs> we still say it to this day. Unreal. I love it. Well, man, so that that's my, or, you know, initial orientation with A for Adventure. But, Let's hear it from from your words. You know, how how did you come up with A for Adventure? Like, how did this all get started? And especially in light of having a great job beforehand and uh, living a good life, what was it that clicked and said, hey, I want to start A for Adventure? Okay, well, I mean, you know, like most stories, there, there's the simple answer and then there's the, the more convoluted one. And, right. You know, again, a part of my convictions is being as being an East Coaster like yourself, you know, we're all given at birth the gift of the gab. That's so right. I, That's know, right. <laughs> we love to talk. Yeah, we do love to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, same. Now I guess with Dave Adventure, man, look, it's been a life's work. I mean, really, I mean all the things you don't realize it when you're in it. Your experience, for example, working in New Brunswick parks and all the skills that you, t- you pulled out of that, you don't realize how those skills are going to later be in your favor when you're doing totally separate things. So, I mean, I've been in the world of adventure tourism for a long time, like you know, from the time I was a teenager, led trips, got people outside, worked at summer camps, had the opportunity to travel the world doing that, leading expeditions and things in lots of different far-flung countries. And and really, I mean, when you're in your early 20s, that's the funnest, sexiest thing possible. You mean, yeah, you're traveling absolutely. to cool places and you're doing neat things. But as you kind of evolve over time, the thing that stood out to me are both those trips. You know, these are when you're out there in the wilderness for long periods of time, when it's, you know, three days to 10 days, that's a lot of time to spend with a, with a stranger. Yep. So you get to know that person. And then you start asking questions. They ask questions of you, ask questions of them. And if, if you take the time to listen, I mean, mostly what people, you know, take adventure off, off the table for a second. Most people in life, what we're looking for is someone to yeah. listen. Yeah, amen. And it's just, it's, it really boils down to being that simple. So I just sort of like really saw that there, there was an opportunity within taking people outdoors mm-hmm. as a medium for discussion, mm-hmm. as a medium to talk about the things that become if they're not already or evolved to become traumas in your life. And for most people, they've experienced some level of trauma. Now, I mean, it's a bell curve, right? There's people who've experienced significant trauma. And, you know, our work in the outdoors has allowed us to work with people like that. And, there, you know, there are people who live fairly prejudiced lives, but also are carrying something, like a weight with them. Right. That they, they need to talk about. Right. So I came back to Canada after a number of years away. And, and I worked, and I slowly kind of got into the field of mental health. and you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, worked in a clinical setting, a lot with adolescents, with teenagers, specifically who mm-hmm. had a relationship with, with addiction. Okay. Challenging work. Challenging work. And these are challenging kids from challenging communities, yep. you know? Yeah. Because a lot of what this is, you know, when we talk about mental health, it's, it's 
for the longest time really has been spoken to about an individual effect, but it, it's an onion and there's lots of different layers to mm-hmm. it, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's the idea of the personal struggle, but then there's the immediate family struggle. And then there's the community, the society struggle. Every bit of those plays into the, into the next level and back and forward. So I loved that work and I really enjoyed it. But a like, little bit, a part of me was thinking like, you know, all these little nuggets of goodness, could it be shared on a, on a broader scale? Mm-hmm. Could we take what we're doing and kind of cast the net a bit wider? Right. And a lot of what we wanted to do and what the company evolved to become was, was really just, just trying to tease out those little elements of what I was doing clinically. But like a lot of really ridiculous things that happen in life, you know, it all kind of came down to like a, a, me and another, a, one of my best friends, Graham Carter, him and I sitting down and drinking some beers one night. And we were looking at a map of Nova Scotia. Now, just off Nova Scotia is a pretty revered island. Right. It's called Sable Island. Mm-hmm. Now a national park. That's right. Full of wild horses. Full of wild horses and pirate treasure, apparently. And it's, you know, a place on earth that's really special. Yeah, yeah. No one really technically lives out there full time. Got some researchers, some park staff and stuff. But Hmm. it's really just a 40 kilometer long stretch of sand that's only a kilometer wide in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. So under the confidence of having some beers, we decided that we would do a fundraiser, try to build some funds to create a camp for kids to go who I was working with kind of in that clinical realm. Right. Trying to get, pull some of those kids who were either in the midst of treatment or post-treatment or pre-treatment and have them an opportunity for them to go to this amazing summer camp that we have here in Nova Scotia called Brigadoon Village. Big plug, check it out. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. They do incredible, incredible work working with kids and families who have a relationship with chronic illness. Mm-hmm. But the chronic illness that more people suffer from than any other is mental health. And at that time, going back, this is seven or eight years ago now, there was no such form. There was no camp for kids like that. Right. So we wanted to do a fundraiser, build up some cash. Let's send some kids to camp. Let's get them out canoeing. Let's take them swimming. Let's do those kinds of things that it's important for a kid to do and important for the, you know, mentioned things I said earlier. Mm-hmm. So we had this idea that me and this other guy, we're going to get in a kayak. We're going to paddle the distance, the 200 kilometers nonstop from Nova Scotia out to Sable Island. And we're going to raise some cash while we do it. So, you know, we wanted this to be a proper fundraiser. So we, you know, like any endeavor, you want to round out your team. Graham and I knew we'd be so busy training for something like this. We knew it was going to take a lot, but we also wanted to make sure we broadcasted the, you know, what we were doing to as many people as possible. So Graham suggested bringing another guy on board to kind of do the social media, to do the sponsorships and coordinate a bit more with media contacts. Mm-hmm. And he says, I know this guy, Chris Surrett. We'll get him to do it. He'd love this. And he, you know, he's, he's looking for any excuse to go to Sable Island. We all are. So he introduced me to Chris. Hmm. Chris and I met on like a blustery winter's night and I pitched to him the idea of what we were going to do. He said it was the perfect kind of crazy that he was looking for. And that next six months, we'd kind of all our free time outside of our, our regular day jobs, we put into telling this story about these two guys trying to paddle out to this island in the middle of the ocean to raise money for kids who had a relationship with mental health. Flash forward, the trip goes well. We did it. Took us thirty hours. It was hard, but we raised a bunch <laughs> yeah. of cash nice. for kids who really needed it. And we're literally coming off the boat getting back into our cars to drive back from a, you know, this thing that had kind of taken up all of the broadband that we had over the last year. And we're in the car. We had landed back in a town called Canso. Mm-hmm. Scotia. Oh, yeah. Beautiful place. Um, one of my favorite towns in all of the province. And the town was still in the rear view mirror. And I was like, man, I got this other idea. And Chris was like, whoa, time out, man. Like... <laughs> We just we just finished this thing. Like, okay, give me give me a couple minutes here. Give me a day or two. Give me a weekend. And I was like, no, man. Actually, I was like, this sounds ridiculous. But I really I had this idea about wanting to do children's books about adventure, and I really want to put one out there. And I had some like some loose concepts about what some of these children's books might look like because I used a lot of these kind of programs when I worked clinically mm-hmm. with the kids at the hospital. These scavenger hunts, these, you know, these different programs that I had always been doing with them. 
but I wanted to kind of turn that into, again, like a book that could be a little bit more broadly shared. And that was really all, all the convincing it took to get Chris on board for that project too. And that was the genesis of A for Venture. It all started with this idea that we put this children's book out. And then as we kind of delved deeper, as I say, we kind of also recognized that a lot of the work that was being done within you know, healthcare could be really retranslated for, for the wider masses. Hmm. But the other element to it that we thought we had landed on and done something and we had learned a lot throughout this trip to Sable Island was the storytelling aspect. Right. It was using media in a way to authentically try to tell the story of nature and the story of why our connection to it is so important. Mm -hmm. And we've really tried our best to, and we've done this really well sometimes and very poorly at times, where we use that technology to get people outside. Now, there's, there's like an obvious conflict there because partly what we preach is like disconnect from technology, get outside, enjoy nature. But the way that we mainly do that is using technology to try to inspire people to get out. Right, right. But, you know, you got to go to you got to go to where the people are. And if, you know, everybody is so connected, it, it does make sense, you know, even if it does seem a little bit little bit of like an oxymoron or something at times where you're this adventure company but or or this company really focused on getting people outside but then you guys have such a huge and excellent social media presence as well but yeah i think i think in the work you guys do it's pretty justified you know and i think this is just part of any any way that you got to go about trying to confront something that's difficult in that's life, right that's right is you got to kind of look at the things that you don't want to do but are necessary you know and then that's also i think indicative of kind of the analogy of an adventure right like yeah. you kind of pointed out earlier yeah. is the, to get that view from the top of mount carlton or any mountain that you climb you got to do the work to get out there yeah, right 100% so, 100% yeah, I like it. So, man, that that is a hell of an origin story, right? Because what you were doing was that 30-hour paddle, which I'm sure people can appreciate how difficult that is. But what was that? So were you in a kayak paddling for 30 hours? <laughs> yeah, a sea kayak. Okay. I think the back on it now and just like how cavalier and sure we were of ourselves that we could do this. And then like <laughs> the older I get, the more I realize is like, wow, it's amazing we didn't hit something really but we had the time of our lives and i, I mean, bet that's amazing both Graham and myself had spent at that point thousands of hours in a kayak right I mean, both right had, had guided professionally had spent a lot of time in boats um, and that's like an important piece to this the atlantic ocean is a body of water that is never to be toyed with mm -hmm. and i can honestly tell you that i had dozens if not hundreds of conversations from people who i really respect fishermen people who spend their lives on the water who looked me in the eye with their own conviction and said, don't do this. This is hellaciously dangerous. <laughs> but, you know, we sort of had a trust in ourselves and we had support too. I don't want to make people think like we just kind of just jumped in a kayak and, and ripped out there. We did have a support boat and stuff. Right, right. You know, we did it all on our own, but should, should have hit the fan. We did have backup mm -hmm. to make sure that we were all right. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I just think often we want... I think innately to sort of test the limits of what our bodies and what our minds are capable of. Right. You know, when, you know, you sort of hit that uh, balance point between like youthful enthusiasm and overconfidence and then enough experience of doing something where, you know, you, you know, again, I've spent a, you know, my entire life on the ocean. So I felt like if we were able to make a crack at it, if we had the window of, of whether to do it, then we could pull it off. And, and thankfully, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's a good, uh, a little bit of a good background because, I mean, to the untrained ear, you know, or I, that, that could sound like, you know, like a death wish. Like that, that, that can borderline on uh, into the wild. But you guys, you guys definitely took the, the right precautions, had the right skills and experience. And we're, we're doing that. We're chasing adventure, which is, is an amazing thing, amazing feeling. And I think to summarize, you know, my, my threshold on risks and adventure, the little shortcut in my mind that I play is the wise words of Beth Johnston saying, too little risk kills the adventure and too much risk kills the adventurer. So you got to find that sweet spot. <laughs> Beth Johnston, another absolute legend. Another legend through and through, 100%. Well, that's amazing. So you guys, you guys get back, you write the book, 
And then how does that translate? Because I know a lot of people hit a wall, right? They, they do something, like they create something. And this is a thing with artists trying to start businesses. You know, they have a one-off of, of a really great product. But how did you translate that into all of the programs and the content and all the things that you guys do now? How did you make that switch into turning this from just a project into something that sustains your, your livelihoods? Well, you know, this is one of these instances where I don't want to make anybody think that we had some sort of calculated plan about right. how we go right. about achieving that. <laughs> we, we certainly had lots of ideas, some of which worked and some didn't. But I think, you know, to distill it down that for something that makes sense, it came down to relationships. Right, right. So we kind of did a pretty calculated look around the field. Who's doing the work? Mm-hmm. You know, we had our contacts that I had already through through the mental health associations and things like this. We already had established relationships with the parks, you know, New Brunswick Parks being, you know, somebody who we looked to immediately as a player in this game. Right. Parks Canada, right. of which, you know, we are a national strategic partner. We knocked on their door with no pitch to them. Like we didn't have anything to offer them other than like, hey, can we help? <laughs> Because this was early days and they were trying to launch some new programs, uh, namely the Learn to Camp program. Right, right. Of which that's been a, you know, an important piece of our work. Mm-hmm. And we had really, again, like very little to offer them in the way of actual tangible skills or offerings. But we knew that they were a stakeholder in this. Right. So we looked, and this is partly going back to what I was saying earlier, is that we were trying to develop ourselves more as storytellers. So we kind of did pitch ourselves in a sense of being like, Parks, you're doing this great work, or New Brunswick Tourism, you're doing this great work, or XYZ brand, whoever you are, you're doing this neat work. Let us help you tell your story. Right, right. So taking taking this sort of content angle as being the initial value in the door. Yeah, but you know, and I do want to say that that's an important piece of our work and something we take a lot of pride in. You know, and I, I yeah. encourage people if, if you are listening that our body of work has led us to some really cool opportunities and and hopefully that's reflected out there for people to see, but it's just one step in what hopefully leads a person to buying into some of our workshops or to our, our facilitations or whatever it is that allows us a little more quality time with that person. Mm -hmm. And that's where we really tend to really pour our passion. Right. Right. I, I think that's just a great strategy. The way that you guys started. You say, you know, you didn't have a pitch, but you did have a lot of immediate value you were going to deliver, right? Helping them get exposure, you know, sort of saying, look, we, we are storytellers. We have the tools and the team to capture what's happening here at, as an example, a learn to camp. What's really amazing in my mind is that you guys took that angle as being sort of the producers of the content into being really the main producers and facilitators of the actual program. You know, I can, I can vouch for the work that you guys do. And I think it's amazing that. What happens now so much at A for Adventure is those organizations like like a Parks Canada or Parks New Brunswick, they provide the form. You guys show up and you guys run the programs and then capture what's happening on your own too. It's, I mean, it's just, you guys sort of deliver value from every angle because it all ties back to this theme of scalability, right? What, what you were looking to do originally was take a little tiny piece of the good stuff, the good programming, the effective programming that helped people in a clinical setting and scale it. And it's amazing that you guys have done that, not just in the form of the book and, and the, the content through the videos or, or, or through anything else that you guys produce, but more specifically, I think, in the programs. And I, I think that the, the Learn to Camp is, is a great example of that. People come to Canada are totally unfamiliar with the communities and the people and, and what the sort of civic dialogue of Canada is. And if their first interaction is you guys giving them a little bit of piece of Canadian tradition, what a way to be welcomed in the country. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. And, you know, it, that was certainly my belief. But at the same time, you know, I remember early days, this is going back six or seven years now, when we were designing that first Learn to Camp program. And this took place in Kejimakujik National Park, beautiful oh, yeah. national park down Love here it. in Nova Scotia. Probably my all-time favorite. Dude, me too. My heart lives there. You yeah. know, I would definitely, I would love to live out eternity down there. Yeah. Yeah. It's I unbelievable. Just, I love it with all my soul. 
But we sat down, you know, this is Parks is at the table, the, all the stakeholders involved with that first program. And the task in front of us was to take somewhere around 70 or 80 brand new Syrian refugees camping. At least hmm. the option was there to do it. Hmm. And then someone made like the really valid point, like these people just came from years spent living in a refugee camp. Is camping the thing we want to be doing with them? <laughs> right. Yeah. Valid. You know, valid point. Yeah. What message is that sending to them? Like, yeah, right. welcome to our country. We're going to put you back in tents. Right. Right. But, you know, no, no, I swear to God, we could be here. We find that thing to be really appealing. I know you just had to live through it in this very serious sense. Welcome to Canada. Right. Right. So, right. I mean, we struggled with that very early on. But to my earlier points, is that we really believe that those opportunities would give opportunity for them to be able to process some of the trauma that they had been through. And, and there was not a single person and a child to the elderly who attended who hadn't been through some extreme trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, the conflict in Syria is something that, you know, is beyond the kind of measure that I can understand. I mean, I've lived such a privileged Canadian life that being forced from my home violently having to seek refuge in a different country. I mean, that I just can't translate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can hear their stories and I can see it. And I mean, and these were situations that not only can you understand the emotional trauma, but the, the literal scars of these wars are on the faces of these people. Yeah. Yeah. So welcoming into the national parks seemed to me to make a lot of sense. And when we did that and we, just gave them the space to sort of just take a deep breath to be able to sit around those campfires. You know, a lot of different languages are at play here. So just even communication sometimes is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this intrinsic, there's this like elemental language that we all speak around sitting around a campfire and, you know, Mm -hmm. banging on a drum and songs. And we've seen this play out so many times in so many different venues now hundreds of times that while I had a hunch at the beginning, this would be very valuable. I'm now absolutely convinced of it. Yeah. And we've kind of taken that model of, of bringing people to places, creating space for them to be able to, to speak to what they're going through, share good food. I mean, I've always called the campfire, the original social network, right? Mm-hmm. That's where mm-hmm. we sat down and that's where we did our sharing, right? That's right. And it's also where we sat down and told like fabulous lies about ourselves. Exactly, exactly. So, so born is the storyteller. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so there's um, there's something really I don't know from you want to look at it from an evolutionary perspective or however you want to kind of dig into that one. It's been a central part of our work, and more than anything else, I think we all recognize in doing that work how much of a privilege it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because again, like you know, not sort of diminishing any struggles that I've been through or, or, or anybody else. But, you know, when you sort of look at folks who are coming to a new place, they're surrounded by uncertainty. It's a pretty amazing thing to watch just safe, beautiful interaction happen. Mm-hmm. I can think of one scenario in particular where I was talking to a man. He had made his way to Canada, with, had a family of three with him. Now, when they left Syria originally, they were, you know, a family of seven. Mm. They'd lost children along the way. And like during our conversation, yeah, it's absolutely tragic, man. And um, again, like I can't pretend really to understand how, how significant that is. Being a new dad, I'm certainly thinking a lot more about Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But in my conversation with him, I said, yeah, I'm enjoying the program, all the usual questions. And then I kind of saw this like wave of panic go across his face. I said, everything okay? And he just looked around over his shoulder and he kind of looked. And then finally he spotted his, you know, four or five-year-old who was just like playing in the leaves by a tree with a bunch of other kids. And I said, everything all right? And I'm like, the kids look fine over there. Because to me, that's what kids do. Right. But to him, he looked at me and, you know, I felt like such an idiot because he was like, this is one of the first times I've ever seen my children play safely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like unrestricted safely just in a place like in a beautiful place it's the first time we'd ever seen it happen and then that kind of leaves me with feeling a that this work is important and b that you know we need to share this with as many people as possible yeah yeah that- not every interaction is going to be that deep or in that emotionally charged but 
it's worth trying every time. Yeah, man. That's, that's incredible story. Incredible story. And I mean, isn't that just in a nutshell, the, the beauty of Canada and its entirety is that you have a, a safe place to, to play and interact and develop as a human being, man. I, I think you, you captured that perfectly. Hmm. Thanks man. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Wow. Well, Hey, look, I want to talk to you a little bit more on your day to day. Um, so zoom in just a little bit. What kind of role do you play now? You know, as as founder of A for Adventure, and what what does your day look like now in terms of activities and what you're doing to keep this thing moving forward? Well, I mean, it's led to you know going back to again a similar thing I was trying to say earlier, right? It's gone back to these relationships that we created have now it's starting to bear a lot of fruit and a lot of other opportunities, mm-hmm. and it's led us to being very involved with the overall promotion of our region, mm-hmm. of the country, mm-hmm. of a lot of these skills that we're, you know, we're sort of speaking to around trying to connect people with nature. We've been afforded these amazing opportunities to do that. So my day to day has kind of broadened from you kind of from where I was five years ago, we were just chasing every opportunity. Now we got to kind of narrow our focus a right. bit more right. about trying to get real about how we do that. And that's kind of like, you know, now we're getting into the reality. I mean, all of the stuff we've been talking about up until now is wonderful. But at the end of the day, in order to make things happen, like the nuts and bolts of business have to kind of come down. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you know, that takes time and that takes effort. And then that takes also trying to build a team to support making that happen. And when I say team, I mean the people you work with, but also the people in your life who support you to make that happen. If that's you know, the people you spend your time personally with, your partner, you know, your family, all of those things. You know, how, how do we look at, our, at the people who support us to be able to get the things done that we need to get done? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't end when you walk out of the office and it doesn't end uh, when you walk out of the house at the, end, in the beginning of the morning. It's a totality of a thing and each one complements the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on that note, your new father. <laughs> yeah, I sure am. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks, man. One of the things I'm always curious about is you have this huge mandate, right? You get all this stuff on your plate. So how do you find or, or, or what kind of steps do you take to ensure that you're balancing, not just wearing the A for Adventure Jan hat, but also, you know, being present with, with your wife and, and with your son as well? Look, I mean, by no means do I have this figured out by any stretch of the imagination. It's a daily struggle about trying to like allocate your time but for me you know i think like there we i mean when i say we but i mean you know chris and i in terms of like business partners mm-hmm. and then more importantly the, you know the relationship that i have with my partner my wonderful wife amanda i mean mm-hmm. you know we a relationship is every bit as much a business endeavor as it is a romantic endeavor right in a lot of right senses, yeah. right and yeah. you know uh, that might sound cold a little bit, but we work hard and we put in the time to make sure that we're trying to support one another in a way that is generous of that person's time, but also realizing that like everybody has a commitment to making sure that they are responsible for their own happiness. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, despite being in this line of work and working in mental health and stuff, I am no means a mind reader. So <laughs> yeah, right. You right. know, I wish I had possessed some sort of Jedi mind tricks and stuff. I don't. I really don't. And what I have found through again nonstop running my head against the wall and then slowly making adjustments is that you got to take the time to to really foster those relationships in a way that is setting yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it took Chris and I a long time to land on this because we were so busy doing so many different things, but just getting together and making sure that we're having those check-ins, you know, as people and as business owners, um, you know, one of the things that my wife and I do that, like I'm most proud of is that every week and sometimes it's like, it's like dragging one another down to do it, but we sit down and we talk and we have a check-in and we have a list of questions that are consistent week after week. And we say, Okay, you know, what are the things on our financial side that we got to go over? What, you know, how are you doing? How can I be a more effective partner to you? Mm-hmm. You know, I've read stuff like that in like a million self help books over the years and stuff, but like actually applying that to your life is one of these accelerators that is 
not only necessary, but just fulfilling at the same time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's brilliant. And you know, I think you nailed it. There's, it's easy to read that stuff. It's even easier to just be like, yeah, I read it. Yeah. 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 I'm going to do that. That sounds like a great idea. Actually taking the time week after week to check in and make yourself available and vulnerable to, to your significant other. I mean, that's admirable. And I think something that probably more of us should just implement in relationships in general. Yeah. Well, you know, again, if you're, especially if you're in it for the long haul Mm -hmm. and you are, you know, again, my wife's also a business owner, right? She was back to work and we knew this going into having a child that she'd be back to work after three months. Well, I mean, for a lot of people, that's a narrow window of time just to have at home with the baby. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to make sure that we were trying to dial things in as best we could so that when she was ready to sort of transition back to work time, and me at the same time, you know, how is our timeline going to look? So, I mean, nowadays, the most important job I do are my days of the week where I'm a full-time dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No kidding. No kidding. That probably makes uh, A for Adventure look like a bit of a cakewalk. Oh, man. And that's the other <laughs> part, too, is that like when you do get to launch yourself back into like the work, I mean, I laugh and Chris and I laugh about this all the time. I mean, Chris has been a dad for a long time. So right, right. A, a more of an appreciation for this. But it's just like, we used to waste so much time just doing nothing, probably having fun doing it, but just wasting time for the hell of it because we had the luxury of it. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. now where our time is uh, certainly more valuable, like the stuff we're able to do, you know, they often say that, you know, if you got something that needs to be done and it has to be done quick, give it to somebody who's already fully committed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Man. Well, that's wild. And, and I bet that's a, a new adventure that's providing all kinds of new challenges and excitements and, you know, all that great stuff. Oh, man. Well, look, I haven't uh, been shat on with so much joy uh, ever in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that's a good indicator that things are, uh, things are going pretty good. Yeah. yeah I know. We've been lucky so far. Everybody's healthy and that's all that matters. Yeah, you got it, man. You got it. Well, look, aside from all of the work that you do at A for Adventure. And not only that, I mean, your previous work too, specifically the, the clinical work and, and your work in recreation therapy. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to see what, a, what an incredible journey and path you've had up to this point. But one thing I know that's coming on your radar more and more is the theme of rural economic development. And you're, you're living a, um, in in Halifax or where are you at right now? I'm in Dartmouth. Dartmouth, which, Nova you know, Scotia. Yeah. Anybody who lives in Dartmouth would give me shit about saying that. Yeah, I live in Halifax. Technically, it's all all one place. That's but, right. That's uh, right. Yeah, Dartmouth has its own uh, lovers. Right. Lovers yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, coming from a rural region, right? Being in Atlanta, Canada, the region as a whole. I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities to to other rural regions in the world. What are some of the main challenges that you see facing Atlanta, Canada and rural regions and some of the things that, that you're working on in, in, in trying to help them overcome? Yeah, well, you look, you know, for anybody who's listening, this is going to sound a little bit in opposition to largely what you're hearing mainly in the media. Mm-hmm. And that is that plug into your, to your news network of choice. And it's all this talk about this migration of people and the movement of people and how places are growing at such a rapid rate. Let me take it, for example, where you are, Toronto. I mean, it's just boomed over the last 25 years at a rate that you know not a lot of people really foresaw happening. Mm-hmm. Now, that's happening here in Halifax, for sure. But it's happening at the expense of a lot of the, the rest of the region. A lot of what's fostering growth here, yes, people are coming here from other places in Canada. They're coming from other places in the world. But largely what's happening is people are moving from these smaller towns because the economic opportunities there don't exist. Right. You know, a lot of the, the places that make up this province, this region, you know, I, I'm going to speak to this region because this is what I work in and what I know best. But don't be surprised that it's different than like most other places in the world. And I mean that seriously. I mean, there are definitely some outliers like you see in Asia and places, but a lot of the rural economy is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the things that people expect for Atlantic Canada to have survived on are the ones that have shrank. I mean, you know, the fishery, the forestry industry, these things that are kind of been mainstays for centuries, for generations, they have moved away from a more subsistence or more of a 
mom and pop level organization. They're more moved to the corporate level mm-hmm. and towns that if you even went back a generation ago had thousands or tens of thousands of people in it have shrunk to just tiny little populations of themselves in the hundreds. Right. And how do you continue a town to, to be able to live in a situation like that? Right. Now, the angle for which we find ourselves is a lot of what has been sold to places like this, and specifically here in Nova Scotia or Newfoundland or New Brunswick. You know, these are beautiful places. They're really beautiful, beautiful places. Mm-hmm. And they're untouched, they're unspoiled. And you know, the one thing, if you scroll through Instagram and you're looking for that beautiful beach that you have entirely to yourself, we've got those in spades. So we've got this interesting dilemma of the fact that our our places outside of the metropoles, you know, the the Halifaxes and the and the larger places, those are growing, but other places are shrinking. Right. Again, it's in opposition to sort of like that that immigration idea that we have. Well, we sort of need immigration for places like these smaller towns to exist. But at the same time, you know, how do they market that beauty? So tourism is one angle that has been proposed to people that it has in some ways been offered to them like this holy savior that's going to come in and it's going to fix all the problems. Mm-hmm. As we've learned through implementation of this stuff and through a lot of different study and a lot of different, of you know, just analyzing different regions and what has worked is that's not the case. Right. You know, because tourism, by very virtue of what it does, is it, is it ebbs and flows. You've got a high season, you've got a low season. And a lot of different innovation has been brought in to try to make it a more of a viable economy over the stretch of, of a whole year. Right. But, you know, this is still early days for this stuff, right? And, you know, why convince someone to go to the shore of New Brunswick or Nova Scotia or anywhere for that matter in the wintertime? unless there's resources there for people to enjoy, right? Right, right. So we've been investing a lot of our time and a lot of our effort. And some of the big questions that are being asked is, and this is, a, this is again, this is something that if you zoom out from that, you know, kind of atmospheric view, mm-hmm. uh, this is true of, of a lot of places in the world, right? You have space, you have opportunity, you have some aspect of a fledgling industry like tourism but it's not the entirety of what makes a community work. So we're trying to sort of reinvent a little bit of the storytelling that we do because we want people to visit these places. But we want them to visit and maybe also think that this might be a good place for them to live. Hmm. Now, the other piece to this puzzle, which is extremely troubling, is take, for example, I spent many years working in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. New Zealand is a profoundly beautiful country. They have a profoundly functional and extremely well thought out tourism industry. But it's New Zealand. Everybody wants to go to New Zealand. Right. So right. therefore, everybody wants to buy a piece of New Zealand. Right. And now what's happened in New Zealand is that so much money's flooded into it that people who are from there can't afford to be hmm. there. Hmm. I've got friends who work good jobs, dual incomes in their household, both working good jobs, they have to apply to a federal program so that they can afford to buy what is basically a postage stamp property in a suburb outside a city. Crazy. Because the valuation has gone that up, Hmm. gone that sky high. Now, that's the same thing that's happened in Toronto. That's the same thing that happened on Vancouver Island. Absolutely. Absolutely. Victoria... If you went back a generation ago, there were parts of that coastline, like you could give that land away and people would be like, meh, it's not really worth anything. (laughs) And now it's, you know, these are million dollar lots. And the same thing is going to happen here in Nova Scotia. It's going to happen in New Brunswick, albeit slowly and differently. Mm -hmm. But those same influxes of cash might come, which are good things. But as we've seen in places like Vancouver Island, as we've seen in places like New Zealand or Hawaii, the average person then can't afford to live there because everybody's buying houses who are from somewhere else and they're right. renting that house on Airbnb. Wow. So we've got all these different like competing dilemmas that are happening, but within that lies a lot of different opportunity. So we're trying to guide the hand of development in a way to think about these problems because 
on the on the outset, it seems like these small towns are places of despair. There's no jobs, but on the other hand, there's this, this opportunity. But then that opportunity might lead to an even bigger problem. Mm-hmm. We already see this happening here in this region, as we see it happen. Like you know, look at the lakes up north of Toronto, the Muskoka region. It's the same kind of thing, right? It's development that only really honors the people who can absolutely afford it. Right. The people who need to live there and work there, they can't even afford to buy a small place. Right, right. Hmm. So I was trying to analyze that. And again, this is you know early days in these conversations. These are stuff we're trying to figure out, but it's definitely where we're trying to place a lot of our effort because we're big believers in this beautiful country of ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like I point out, this isn't going to be unique to Canada. This is something that's going to happen. There's more and more people in the world. And for good and for bad, there's more and more money out there too. So how do we use that to build communities as opposed to just like sort of capture, freeze these communities in, in time uh, and they only become basically time shares. And we see this a lot where people, they buy these beautiful coastal properties, they come and they use them from Germany for six weeks of the year. Right, right. That's not contributing to a tax base. That's not contributing to, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hmm. So that's the kind of work we're doing now, man. And it's, you know, again, in, in, we're in our early days with this as much as we are, are not at the same time. But these are the bigger questions that we're trying to ask ourselves and trying to, you know, use the work that we do in working with people in the outdoors and still using that as a model, but hopefully using it as a model to try to, to encourage good development in these amazing places. Mm-hmm. Man, that's uh, that's a really great synopsis. I, I think that's probably the, the the most clear overview of what's happening in rural regions around the world that I've that I've probably ever heard. You know, it it excites me when you're talking about that stuff because I th- I think too, and and I've always thought of this that the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, or or any rural region for that matter, there's tons of challenges presented, and especially I mean I'm I'm sort of subject day right. I'm I'm from from the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia, but I live in Toronto now. But I, I do certainly have have dreams of of getting back there one day, you know. And and I, I really don't uh, don't hide that. I'm I'm really proud to be from uh, from Nova Scotia, and it's going to be really interesting because the next the next decade or two of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick or any rural region, I think is going to look a lot different than the last decade or two. And and I think that change hasn't really permeated in a lot of these places to a huge degree. Right, you come into Toronto, and if you you know if you come to Toronto once a year, if you skip a year, the changes in the city are, are going to be almost recognizable. You know, your your favorite coffee shop on Bloor Street or whatever is is no longer. It's just a matter of fact. And in rural regions, that the pace of change is so much slower. It sort of creeps along. And I think what's going to happen, especially with trends like remote work, and 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 this increase in mobility in the workforce. I think we're going to have a, a bit of a resurgence in in rural regions, and it's my hope that rather than having timeshares and people coming in and contributing to the economy by you know buying a few things for six weeks of the year, what happens is you actually get families reinvested in these areas and really making them you know like they used to be great places to live. But but I think you know not with with that same sort of nostalgia. I think there's a new path forward and a new paradigm for rural regions that is it's it's really grounded in again back in, in into some of that tradition of community but has that that, that sort of progressive and forward leaning approach with the nature and, and geographies of remote work and and those sort of uh, trends we're seeing in society man you're right on the money absolutely you know and more to the point i think it's people who are in search of a certain quality of life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know if i look back to way back to 2001 when I graduated from high school, really at that time, like the only option that existed to you was to basically go somewhere else. Right. Now there are people who went and became the nurses and teachers and things that, you know, are, are good, well-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, the majority of people had to leave. Right. Well, right. now you're seeing this, this, this people, this mass of a population who left and they learned things. And there are people like yourself, you know, who went to Alberta, they went to Toronto, they went to Europe, they went to Australia, they learned things, they've got skills, and they have this vision, but perhaps coming back and starting a new life because they're searching for that quality of life. 
And that's, I think, you know, an important aspect, not just about what happens here in, in Atlanta, Canada, but it, you know, the world over is people who are in search of, of a quality of life that matters to them. And I think part of what offers a true quality of life is, is, is a good community. It is having the balance of being able to do good work alongside being able to spend time doing the things that you love to do. You know, recreation. Think about the word recreation, for example. If I put a little dash in front of the R-E, it would spell, you know, you'd look at it and you'd say, oh, that says recreation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do in our time when we're not working. We recreate ourselves. Hmm. And that is so absolutely fucking critical to a well life, a well lived life, I Mm -hmm. should say. Mm -hmm. And what we want for people, you know, again, thinking about this broader conversation about rural economic development is we want people to go to these places. We want to live there and work there, but we also want them to recreate themselves there. And that happens through the recreation that happens through those beach walks. That happens to the people, you know, I live next door to two people who are from Ontario. They moved here to Nova Scotia so they can surf. Mm, Surfing is the thing that they love to do. And it's that passion and that fuels the drive of them doing lots of other amazing things in their life. So, I mean, it's that balance, right? It's Mm -hmm. trying to find that middle ground of doing good stuff that matters to you, that gives you fulfillment, but also having the space and time to be able to just be where you got to be with the people you need to be with. Yeah. Amen. Amen, brother. I love it. All right, Jan. Well, let's dock it there for episode one, but there's a million threads that I could pull on that I'm having to restrain myself in, in the name of time and in the name of, you know, your, uh, your little one probably needing uh, some of your time in a, in a time. <laughs> but why don't you share with us, you know, what, what's next for you? What, what's right on the horizon that's getting you really excited? All the stuff that I've been talking about are things that, you know, definitely get me worked up in the morning for sure. But principal among them, man, is, is, you know, taking this time and just being there as a dad, um, as, as a partner. I mean, those are the things that I, I'm absolutely most excited about. And, you know, again, I'm really very privileged to be in a situation where, where I get to take that time, you know, and uh, like I was saying earlier, time has always kind of been moving at this sort of quantum leap level, but it certainly seems like it's gone a whole lot faster these last seven months. So, yeah, I bet. You know, I definitely want to slow down. You know, part of that, I think, is just like, I don't want to be busy anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I want mm-hmm. to be purposeful. And I kind of get a little bit frustrated when you talk to people and you say, you know, hey, I mean, how you doing? And people are like, oh, man, I'm so busy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes busy to me kind of indicates that you're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have your priorities stacked up the way they do. Yeah. No, and look, I mean, you know, if you're a new dad, new mom, new business owner, new whatever, like, you know, you're busy. Like yeah. you're busy. Yeah. You know, your time is is on the crunch. But as you get into those roles, you should be able to figure out the places that you're needed and the places that you're not needed. So right now, man, the thing that I'm most excited about is doing that. In terms of like the professional front, man, like there's um, some really great work that's happening over the next year and the next couple of years as we continue to grow. This stuff I've been talking about, world development, man, and, you know, all of the things that we do in terms of connecting people outdoors, uh, those are things that are more necessary now than ever. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just at the very tip of the iceberg with it about what needs to happen and the conversations that need to happen. So, man, we're hustling hard there for sure. But outside of that, some milestones that I'm pumped about for this year is, uh, you know, a, a passion that you and I both share. That aside all these other passions that we're That's right. deep in That's tonight right. is, is playing music, man. And um, you know, I'm blessed also to play with, uh, with uh, in the band, uh, George Woodhouse and the Public Service. We got an album coming out this year that Amazing. You know, put a lot, of, a lot of heart and soul into that I'm really stoked about. And then also there's some new books on the horizon that I'm very excited about too. You know, Wow. I mean, children's publication hopefully and uh, i'm working on a guidebook too to kind of again you know uplift those communities and show people come on that, uh, come on know, love Nova it. scotia atlanta canada we're open for business we'd love to see you come down here yeah man join the party absolutely well hey look you're, you're making the case and i tell you what if anyone's looking to come down i'll send you jan's way and uh 
they can go chill with you and George and, and the public service and a kitchen party. And man, that, that'll, that'll be a life-changing moment for them. I <laughs> It'll definitely be a time. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll certainly uh, have some fun and sing some songs. That's a, uh, that's a guarantee. Well, Jan, I tell you what, this is absolutely perfect. Look, we hit on the three things most near and dear to my heart. Well, you know what? We could even re- go, go with the top five, you know, experiential education, founding a business, entrepreneurship, regional economic development, little taste on music right at the end too. I mean, you know, and, 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 and of course, some themes of uh, religion, spirituality, and, and you know, what this is all about, sprinkled through in, throughout, I should say. So look, man, I appreciate it. Where can we find you? Where's the best way to uh, follow along with A for Adventure? Look, we're on the social medias. Uh, I draw the line at Twitter. I don't do Twitter. Okay, fair I'm enough. not into it. I mean, we have an account out there. It gets by far the least of my time. Mm-hmm. But uh, by all means, come on over and see us on Instagram or Facebook or you know, your platform of choice by any means. And, uh, and we're easy to find, aforadventure.ca. You know, look, I mean it when I say it, it all comes down to relationships. And if you, if you want to explore more, you want to have a conversation, reach out to us. And we'd love to hear from you. We truly would. But I'm very grateful to you, man. Thank you for having me here. And having this conversation. I'm grateful to you for this work that you do. It's very, very important. Yeah. And you know what? It's, uh, it's fun for me nonetheless. And uh, look, man, I, I appreciate, appreciate your time. One thing I always do is summarize with what this thing's all about. And Frontliners, the, the mantra of the show is don't live life on the sidelines, which was a motto that I had in high school to make sure that I wasn't, even if I was not ready to do something yet, I was going to dive in. I was going to attack it. And man, exactly what you do uh, in, in your philosophy. Uh, have the convictions, man. I mean, you know, you, you nailed it right off the top. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Jan the Man Lapierre, author, founder, adventurer, extraordinaire. Thanks so much for coming in, Jan. Much love, buddy. Hey, likewise, Jano.